The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. I take full responsibility for everything this government has been doing in tackling coronavirus, and I'm very proud of our record. Tens of thousands of our citizens have died avoidably. These were unnecessary deaths because of systematic government misconduct. With good British common sense, we will continue to defeat this virus and take this country forward. There are a lot of green shoots of opportunity on the horizon. You know, we've been held down on forest floor for far too long, and we will reach that canopy again. Hello, you're listening to Bloomberg Westminster, your daily guide to British politics. I'm Roger Hearing. And good afternoon. I'm Caroline Hepker. Well, like me, were you waited, waiting with bated breath over the weekend to see what happened with those Brexit negotiations? Well, we ran straight through the deadline. Yes, uh, nothing really came up in terms of an actual uh, concrete change, at least not one that I've managed to see. But for some reason, they clearly think it's worth continuing to talk. Another deadline gone by, Boris Johnson, Ursula von der Leyen giving negotiators more time. The two leaders said talks would continue beyond the Sunday deadline that had been set. And just weeks to go, of course, until the end of the transition period. Well, this is what the Prime Minister had to say about it. I'm afraid we're still very far apart on some key things. But where there's life, uh, there's hope. We're going to keep uh, talking to see what we can do. The UK certainly won't be uh, walking away from the talks. I think people would expect us to, to go the extra mile. So that was the Prime Minister. Bloomberg sources say that a new UK proposal might break the deadlock over how to keep a level competitive playing field for businesses. But this morning, the EU negotiator Michel Barnier said that the two sides are still split on state aid and he sees limited progress on trade deal enforcement. So that subdued sentiment was echoed by the vice chair of the European Parliament's Committee on Fisheries, uh, Soren Gaither, who spoke to us earlier. You have had more than a year, and if, if there was supposed to be an agreement, you have had it already now. So, I, I, to be honest, I don't think there will be any agreement at all. I mean, the world is not stopped because there's no deal and something will come out of it later. But I, I do not think there will be a, a deal right now. Soren Gather there. Well, joining us now is Stephen McCabe, Labour MP for Birmingham, Sally Oak. Stephen, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Um, let me ask you then, I mean, your leader, uh, Keir Starmer, has said that Labour will vote for a deal. Uh, but at the moment, there isn't one on the table. Do you think there will be any time soon? Well, it's very hard to say for certain. Uh, I mean, this is going on and on and on. And I I've got this horrible feeling if we're having this conversation this time next year, we'll be talking about the same thing. Uh, I, I think what might happen is that the absolute 11th hour, there may be a very kind of unsatisfactory, messy compromise to get us over the next few weeks. And I think we'll have to keep coming back to the central issues because it's clear that the government here had prepared uh, for a proper comprehensive mm. arrangement and they haven't been able to address the main issue. 
Stephen, uh, Conservatives will say that any disruption to trade uh, will be short term, will be short lived, and that from that point on, January the 1st, deal or no deal, there's a possibility of uh, free trade agreements with other parts of the world and that it won't be particularly damaging. Well, I think they're mistaken in that judgment. I mean, already we're hearing about food shortages, potential uh, price rises in food uh, supply chain uh, components for the motor car industry, pharmaceutical concerns. So I, I, I think there are immediate concerns. I don't see the whole country will grind to a halt. They're right in that respect. But I think there will be some difficulties which may well mount. And I, I'm not quite sure what the evidence is that, uh, you know, other um, agreements with other countries have resolved the problem. I think they represent a fraction of the trade arrangements we have with the EU. But Stephen, in this situation, uh, clearly there, there are some opportunities, I guess, but isn't it actually a matter of Labour, shouldn't it be Labour policy to kind of embrace that. A lot of people feel the Labour Party has stood back from this. They said, yes, we'll back a deal, uh, and they've sniped from the sidelines. But an awful lot of people who formerly supported the Labour Party were pro-Brexit supporters in the referendum. Isn't it a point where Labour is much more active in saying, yes, we can take this forward and actually create a good way out of all this for Britain? Well, I'm sure we would if we could, but, uh, you know, political reality is we have a government with an 80-seat majority, we have a Prime Minister who said 12 months ago he had uh, already made an oven-ready deal, uh, and we have the entire negotiating process in the hands of the Tory party. So, I mean, Labour, sadly, uh, is not in a great position to do much about it. What we would advise is get whatever sort of deal you can at this stage, because leaving with no deal is worse, and let's work to improve things as we go along. Was there political miscalculation on bo both sides, that Johnson, um, you know, it was argued, would not walk away, and then on the British side, seeing the EU, that there would be this possible intervention by Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron at the last minute? Sort of real kind of political misjudgments and severe ones on both sides. I think that is perfectly possible, although I, I, I kind of feel myself that, uh, you know, given that uh, uh, Britain was in the driving seat, uh, we should have been a bit better prepared. But yes, I would accept there's been a bit of miscalculation at both ends. Yes. Let me move you on, if I may, Stephen, to what the handling of the pandemic, because we have got an interesting moment in the diary this week, which is the moment at which the government has another look at the tiering structure, what they're going to do. Um, now, lots of stories suggesting that London might join where you are in Birmingham uh, in tier three. Um, do you think, from what you know of what's going on in Birmingham, that the tiering structure, the tier three you've been under, has actually been in any way effective in dealing with the virus, uh, in trying to reduce the number of infections? Um, I don't think it's been that effective because, obviously, um, you know, people are able to travel from uh, uh, different tiered areas at the moment. Uh, and there are still, in any large urban area, there are still... Uh, substantial movements of people on a daily basis. If you look at Tier 2 London, I mean, there are some boroughs 
there, which have uh, rates as high or perhaps higher than Birmingham now. So I don't think the tiering system in itself has been that effective. I think you would need to have a tighter control and a tighter lockdown if the idea is to try and squeeze down the numbers. But of course, if you do that, um, you absolutely uh, cripple uh, many businesses and in tier three places, the main issue is the hospitality sector, which is virtually being wiped out. Mm. Uh, Do you think that we should scrap the looser Christmas arrangements whereby uh, up to three households may mix um, for a period of, what, five days? Should that now be dropped given the rise in coronavirus cases and what may be in store in January, even as we roll out the vaccine? Uh, Well, I think it's possibly far too late for Boris Johnson to do that. I don't think he's got many aces up his sleeve. And I think if he was to cancel Christmas, it might be a killer blow for him. So I don't think that can happen. But I do actually believe that the signal it sends that people can relax and maybe things are better than they are has been a mistake. And I do worry that we will see another rise in rates in in a number of areas in the early part of the new year. Stephen, do you think, I mean, uh, you were, of course, uh, formerly Shadow Education Minister um, under Ed Miliband. I mean, do you think the handling of the schools issue has been right? The government seemed to move backwards and forwards on it, but in the end insisted that schools remain open. Many people now saying that uh, at secondary schools, this was a huge uh, area of of infection moving around, of spreading infection, that whatever the necessities for education, in the end, the price we're going to pay for keeping schools open is going to be very high. Well, I think there is a very persuasive argument for trying to keep schools open, but I think perhaps it would have been smarter if we'd had more um, phase uh, entry to schools and obviously we've come very late to the idea that we should be having testing in schools. Maybe that should have been done right at the outset. Hmm. Is your area ready for the vaccine rollout? Well, of course, Birmingham uh, is ready. And in fact, I'm delighted to say that the first 85-year-old woman did have her vaccine in Birmingham uh, just, I think, about 48 hours ago now. Hmm. But that was after a rather traumatic phase where... Birmingham was missed off the initial government list and we were left wondering if uh, we'd done something to upset the Prime Minister. I mean, a lot of GP surgeries, Stephen, are under huge pressure over this. I mean, people saying that actually it's too much. They'll have to uh, forestall treating other patients if they go ahead with this. Is the system really set up to deal with this kind of mass vaccination? Well, I... I don't think, uh, you know, rural areas may be different, but I don't think GP surgeries should be the major focus of vaccine delivery. What we need are major uh, NHS uh, hospital centres to do this and for them to take control uh, of mass uh, vaccinations. I don't think it's really, you know, but GP surgeries are already struggling and I don't think we can... Uh, impose such a crucial burden on them. Mm. Uh, yeah, indeed. And then briefly, how how long, how quickly do you think it's going to take to vaccinate people in your area? Well, look, the good news is we've got a vaccine and people are being vaccinated and that's a, you know, a huge step forward after the year we've had. But uh, my own 
judgment is it will probably be April or May before we start to to see real benefits. And, uh, uh, you know, given there have been problems with everything else, I wouldn't anticipate an entirely smooth rollout of the vaccine. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Let's have a look at what else is making news in the world of politics, Caroline. Well, it's at London, perhaps entering tier three. UK scientists have told the government to consider putting the capital into extra restrictions. Uh, around three quarters of the 32 boroughs in the capital have seen a rise in cases, particularly um, amongst uh, those in... Well, the secondary school age children, I think, are the ones that are particularly uh, being concerned about. The Labour Mayor, Sadiq Khan, has already called for the capital schools to shut from today. Schools in the borough of Greenwich have already been asked to close and switch to remote learning from Monday evening. And the local council issued the order due to rising virus rates in the area. But the business secretary, Alok Sharma, says schools should stay open. We are ensuring that home testing kits are available in schools uh, where there are uh, particular issues with infections. Uh, we're making sure that uh, the lateral flow tests are actually going out to them. For young people, for students, the best thing we can do to support them is to keep them in education. So that's uh, on uh, London and the Tier 3, Roger. What about the vaccine rollout? Well, the next phase of the COVID-19 rollout is underway with doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech jab being delivered to more than 100 vaccination centres across England. NHS staff, including nurses and pharmacists, will work alongside GPs to vaccinate those aged 80 and over, as well as care home workers and residents. Care home residents in Scotland will get the jab for the first time today. So the rollout is Mm. continuing apace. Meanwhile, energy is back in focus. The government set out its long-awaited energy plan, detailing how the UK can achieve its goal of net zero emissions by 2050. The white paper includes plans to automatically switch consumers to cheaper tariffs. The Prime Minister has also said to have approved talks for a new £20 billion nuclear power station at Sizewell, with the government considering taking an equity stake in the plant. And then just lastly, British engineers will soon begin work on a comet-chasing spacecraft that will track down and map these celestial objects. Thales Elenia Space has won the contract to design and build the mothership for the European Space Agency's 150 million euro comet interceptor mission. Scientists are aiming to unlock the secrets of the early evolution of the solar system by studying comets, and they also hope that it will shed light on questions like how water came to be on earth so very interesting Mm. scientific development well if there's a bunch of people who wanted to jump on a rocket and go off into (laughs) outer space right now i guess it might be a few of those people gathered in brussels for the interminable uh brexit trade talks let's go back to that because there's a push to get the agreement It went past the deadline, of course. The main stumbling block, still fishing rights and a level playing field for businesses. Let's get perhaps an inside view of what may be going on inside the Tory party about all this. Let's bring in Alex Dean, Head of Public Affairs, UK and FTI Consulting, former Chief of Staff to David Cameron and Tim Collins when they were Shadow Secretary of State for Education. Alex, welcome to the programme. Thanks for being with us. Hi, Roger. Hi, Caroline. 
good to have you there. I mean, let me ask you, at the moment, a lot of people are scratching their heads and saying, why is Boris Johnson appearing to play such hardball when, in a way, perhaps the threat from the very hard Brexiteers, who might not want a deal anyway, is not perhaps as great as it may have been, given that the Labour Party, for example, say they will back a deal if it comes to the House of Commons. Well, that's the point, I think, uh, Roger, that um, this isn't to do with the ERG and so forth anymore. It's just classic negotiating, setting out a hard line um, so as to be able to, um, if you are going to compromise, compromise later rather than now. Uh, and the, there's only one deadline here that matters, and it's the 31st of December. This will go right to the wire, I think. And um, it's in light of that that, that I think we see... Um, the kind of conversations that you're um, you're talking about, um, you won't find, I think, um, many people going into negotiations who think, you know, if I just set out lots of compromises now, I'll get a good deal. It's inevitable that you take a, a robust position, in, in, especially in your public discussions, uh, so that later on your compromises are reasonable rather than ceding everything to your opponent's side. Hang on, Alex, you can't seriously be saying that this is still part of the negotiating tactics. I mean, oh, we're I what, tw- 12 oh, days or something, working days away but, from the end of the year. I absolutely do mean that, Caroline, that these deals are done in the absolute last minute. Indeed, that's part of the reason that the UK resisted the extension of the transition period, because if you keep extending things, you never get to the last minute and there would never be a deal done. In, in mm. Brussels negotiations, they often stop the clock in the room, li- literally stop the clock at one minute to midnight so that they maintain the fiction that you're, um, you're still in the last day. Um, there will, there is, I think, ample room for compromise here. But it's inevitable as you get close to things, you get a bit of aggressiveness from both sides in any negotiation, and you get a bit of pantomime. And I, you know, then you get people coming out of a negotiating room at three in the morning, patting each other on the back and saying, yeah, "Well done, Michelle. No, no, well done, David. Um, we've reached an agreement." And I actually remain confident that we will have an agreement between um, the UK and the EU. But, but Alex, this is a very high stakes gamble, and I mean. It sounds to me like a game of chicken is what you're saying it is. It's like, and if you remember the famous film uh, Rebel Without a Cause, if you stay in the car too long, the car goes off the cliff. Aren't we at the point where that is happening? No, I don't think so. And I think you would only, you, you would have to believe the most apocalyptic of outbursts from people about what no deal is in order to think that. The point is that in any negotiation, you have to be willing to walk away. Otherwise, you're always going to get a tough deal. And if I say to you, um, it doesn't matter what the condition is and it doesn't matter what the price is, I'm buying the car, now let's negotiate. Who's going to come better out of that deal, you or me? You have to be able to to walk away. And WTO terms are the terms on which much of the world does their trade. So we mustn't fear um, the option of saying this is actually unseasonable for us. It's not an unreasonable outcome. But businesses simply don't agree with that. Whole swathes of various large industries are aghast. The cries are only kind of getting louder about the need for um, at least some kind of deal um, and that this will be disastrous for business come the new year and that it won't just be short term. Do you think that this Conservative Party under Boris Johnson is still the party of business? Oh, no, I I absolutely do. And I think that... that you only have to see some of the things that have propelled the discussion with um, the European Union along, uh, which, which is the trade deals, both you know continu- continuation uh, deals, uh, continuity deals, and new deals that the UK has been dealing, uh, signing with third parties and third countries. 
Um, you, one of the reasons that um, there was new impetus given to the discussion um, in Brussels was the UK signing um, a comprehensive economic partnership with Japan. Um, and you know, we had seen for some years people saying that these deals would take many years, we didn't have the negotiators, we didn't have the bandwidth, yeah. we couldn't get it done, and we have. And but, that but has Alex, given extra Japan, to this happening. Japan's a tiny part of our trading economy. It's not something, it's not a huge deal. It's not, it's, and it's an exception. There are an awful lot of deals we aren't getting, including the one potentially with the US, unless something is done about the Northern Ireland situation. So it, well, it hasn't really met the test. But, Roger, you've missed the, something already has been done in the situation. We've, that, that's no longer a point in dispute between the parties. We've reached an agreement over um, Ulster. Now, some people may think that we, we, you know, we haven't got to the right point on the Northern Ireland um, situation, and, and I'm sure that conversation will continue. But there's no longer any dispute between the UK and the EU over um, Northern Ireland. So I wouldn't worry about that. And on your point about Japan, um, of course, the agreement with Japan includes um, a commitment from them to support UK joining the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is one of the world's biggest free trade areas, more than 13% of the global economy. Um, so and it's not you say small beer, I say not that small. And bear in mind with the European Union, the slowest growing economic area in the world, um, we will still trade. You know, it's, it's individuals and businesses that trade in the end with uh, between one another, not governments. So... Um, I would point to the fact that um, there's going to be a great deal of trade still going on between the UK and EU member states, whatever um, agreement we, we do or don't reach uh, with them, that any kind of tariff impact is going to be dwarfed by economic activity, such as the impact of the coronavirus, which I think rather puts things in perspective. And the UK is doing deals hand over fist with other countries around the world, all of which are growing faster than the EU. So you've got to start tethering yourself and worrying so much about the EU, looking at it down the wrong end of the telescope. Hmm. Uh, interesting. Um, what then about um, the, the link really between the pandemic and Brexit? I mean, do, is that going to end up, uh, you know, b being cover for, or it will will it simply exacerbate uh, Brexit? I mean, the unemployment rate is not expected to peak until next year. The government's spending huge yeah. amounts of money on um, relief for workers and uh, businesses. Uh, you know, this is going to be a double whammy for next year. Well, it's. I mean, there is no good time to have a pandemic, right? Uh, there is no time when you say, OK, now we're, now this would be the ideal occasion on which we would have a, uh, a horrible medical condition uh, run right in our country and, and the global um, economy. So I don't, know, I don't know if it's a positive or not, but it certainly does give a certain amount of perspective on the importance of um, the economic terms that we are setting out with the European Union. 70% 70 70 plus of UK trade, um, act, economic activity is domestic. It's us trading and buying with ourselves, manufacturing and buying uh, from other parts of the UK. And, and something that hits our, that economy is it, it an order of magnitude worse than the imposition uh, of tariffs, which may make, tra make trade with other countries a little more expensive for the minority of businesses that do export. Uh, and of, so my point is the coronavirus impact is, is far greater um, than the impact of, of Brexit, not just a little, but far greater. Um, and, of course, one would wish it weren't, weren't happening. It's a terrible thing, and I would love us all to be outside of these horrible tears and lockdowns and, and people not to be affected by the, the terrible health conditions. But my point is it does give rather um, um, a perspective on the importance in the end of all the things we're being threatened with in the course of the EU.
Bloomberg Westminster. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.